Well, this morning, we come to one of the most valuable chapters in the entire Bible, literally. Fortunes have been made through novel interpretations, novels themselves, and movies based on the teaching we find in Mark 13 and the parallel accounts in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. The most recent, recent uh, fortunes were made through the Left Behind series of 16 novels and four movies, and I expect we'll soon see more biblically-based books and movies about viral pandemics, riots in the street, monuments being torn down, and record-breaking murders in major cities and even our own. Well, obviously, I'm not on the fast track to millions with a title like the Olivet Discourse, Tribulation Force, Soul Harvest, Assassin, and Desecration are much more marketable. But the Olivet Discourse is the traditional name to Jesus' teaching that was delivered during the last week of his life on the Mount of Olives, a discourse that was given in response to questions asked by his disciples after leaving the temple. We're going to take a careful look at this discourse this morning, not in the hopes that it'll make us rich, but because it is indeed a most valuable teaching, one that prepares us for the tribulations of life, encourages us to faithfulness in serving Christ, and gets us ready for the second coming. We're going to take it one step at a time, beginning with the question. And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? As Jesus and the disciples left the temple complex, someone commented about the wonderful stones and buildings that made up the area. And indeed, it was wonderful. It was one of the architectural wonders of the Roman world. Now, this wasn't Solomon's temple. It had been destroyed some 600 years earlier. Nor was it Zerubbabel's temple, the lesser temple built by the Israelites after the Babylonian captivity. This was Herod's temple, a massive building project begun in 20 B.C. and still going on during Jesus' day. It was located on the top of Mount Moriah, where Isaac had been offered by Abraham and where the other temples had been built. 
The mountaintop, however, had been expanded by building walls around it to form a 20-acre platform upon which the temple buildings were constructed. Walls that were made of stones as big as 40 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet wide. On the platform were built porches that surrounded the temple area, made of pillars nearly 40 feet high, cut from solid blocks of marble, several courtyards and buildings, and the temple itself, which was covered with gold. The main entrance to the temple was reached by crossing a bridge that spanned a 225-foot deep valley. The bridge was 354 feet long and 50 feet wide, constructed of arches, 41 and a half feet wide, fashioned from 24-foot-long blocks of stone. As they crossed the bridge and headed out of town, one of the disciples mentioned how wonderful the temple was. Jesus' response was shocking. He told them the temple would be destroyed. That not one of those huge stones that made up the buildings on the temple platform, the buildings on there, would be left one upon another. Now, some of the foundational stones in the base around the mountain would remain, and that is what constitutes the wailing wall that you hear about today. But the temple buildings would all be completely destroyed. After saying that, Jesus continued down the road. You can imagine the confusion and the questions that were flooding the disciples' minds. Finally, when they reached the Mount of Olives, the summit of which is 150 feet higher than the temple, giving a great view of the temple area, Jesus sat down. Peter, James, John, and Andrew then approached him and questioned him about what he had said. The disciples wanted to know when the temple would be destroyed and what sign would be given that it was about to take place. Now, Matthew does tell us that they also include a question about the signs of his coming and the end of the age. But that came from their misunderstanding about the nature of the kingdom of God, not from Jesus' statement. They assumed that the destruction of the temple would signal the end of the world and that Jesus would surely establish the messianic kingdom they'd been expecting before that could happen. The primary question being asked, however, and the only one Mark and Luke record had to do with the destruction of the temple. So Jesus' discourse focused on that event, not on the second coming, as many read into his response. In fact, he warned us not to be misled by those who would think the destruction of Jerusalem and similar tragic events would signal his return. Let's read on. And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. 
And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will arise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Every time there is a major confrontation in the Middle East, someone will write another book telling us it's going to lead to Armageddon and the second coming. Whenever there's a big earthquake or an extensive famine, or as Luke includes in the list, plagues, someone will say it's a sign of the end of the world. But what did Jesus say? Did he say wars and rumors of wars? Breaking news about fighting in the streets? Earthquakes and famines signal his coming? No. He said just the opposite. He said, see to it that no one misleads you. Not only will self-proclaimed prophets insist they have the inside track on what's happening, some will actually claim they are the one to lead us through such perilous times, setting themselves up as a savior or messiah of sorts. But Jesus warned us to let no one mislead us. The destruction of the temple would be God's way of bringing the old covenant to an end, not the world to an end. And wars and earthquakes and famines are merely reminders that something better is coming. They are the beginnings of birth pangs. They're not labor pains announcing the arrival. You know, if we could really teach the world to sing in perfect harmony with no wars or catastrophic events, we would have heaven on earth and forget about the glorious future God has planned for us. But that is not going to happen. Nation will rise up against nation. There will be earthquakes and famines and pandemics but they do not signal the end. They are merely reminders that something better is coming. And Jesus made us a promise that no matter how bad things get, we can still accomplish his will and be saved in the end. Just read on. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not be anxious beforehand about what you're to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother to death, and a father his ch child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all on account of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. 
be on your guard is literally look to yourself. When tragedy strikes and the world turns against you, don't look for some false messiah to save you. Look to yourself because you have already been given what you need to succeed and to survive. And things were going to get bad for the disciples. That's to whom he was speaking. They would be delivered to courts. And be flogged. They would have to defend their faith before governors and kings. But the Spirit would speak through them. And the gospel would be proclaimed throughout the world. Family members would turn against them. And the pressure to abandon the faith would be unbelievably strong. They would in fact be hated by all men. And all but one of them would be killed. For the faith. But if they relied on the resources of the Spirit, they could endure and they would be saved eternally in the end. They couldn't let anything, not even the destruction of the temple, make them think God had abandoned them. And yes, the temple would be destroyed. And to answer their question, they would know when it was about to happen. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let him who is on the housetop not go down or enter in or get anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. Pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never shall. And unless the Lord had shortened those days... No life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order, if possible, to lead the elect astray. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it should not be, flee. Because that's the sign that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. Now, the phrase abomination of desolation was borrowed from Daniel. And his prophecy most likely referred to the desecration of the temple that took place at the hands of Antiochus Epiphanes, which led to the Maccabean revolt in 167 B.C. What Jesus meant by the abomination of desolation was obviously something else. But it wasn't left open to interpretation. He told us what he was talking about. 
The parallel account of the Olivet Discourse in Luke actually records Jesus saying, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. In spite of that, some still inject their premillennial theology here and insist that Jesus had another abomination in mind as well. But that is pure speculation. Besides, the course of action Jesus suggested, as well as the prayer for good weather when it happens, only makes sense when fleeing from an approaching army. It does not make sense as a course of action when Jesus is about to return. The abomination of desolation was the Roman army. And the sign that Jerusalem was about to be destroyed would be its arrival. Those who responded as Jesus instructed were saved. They fled and escaped. The majority, however, ran into the city and locked themselves in. The Roman general Titus surrounded the city, starved them, and then marched in to destroy the city and the temple. The horrors of that siege are known to history and fulfill the picture of tribulation that Jesus painted. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that over a million Jews perished in a single day. What Jesus had said came true. The disciples had been warned, and they included that warning in three of the Gospels so all would know what to do when the army arrived. But the majority ignored the warning and over a million died because of it. Many who did survive then fell victim to false messiahs and false prophets who held out false hopes for the nation and actually made coming to faith in Christ very difficult. Those false hopes are still being held out today. And many are convinced that unbelieving Jews will be given another chance to accept Christ after he returns. But that will not happen. Because when he returns, the day of opportunity will be over. And there will be no advanced warning of his return. Because the sign of his return will mark the end of the world. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. In 
In Matthew's account, we discover Jesus included these words, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus' coming will be announced by a cosmic event of worldwide proportions. No one will have to wonder if he's coming or not. The entire universe will be shaken. The sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will fall from heaven. All will then see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And there will be no warning that this is about to happen. Peter says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. And Paul writes in Thessalonians that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. There will be no further warnings before the end. When he appears, the day of decision will be over. And as Jesus taught in several parables, the angels will gather up the unsaved and cast them into the furnace of fire. And the elect, those whom we should note have been left behind, will then be gathered together for their eternal reward. The day of the Lord will be a day of unspeakable horror for those who never accepted the grace of God when it was offered. They will cry out for the mountains and rocks to fall on them and hide them from the presence of Christ. But as Luke records, Jesus told the disciples, when these things began to take place, straighten up. And lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He then used parables to drive home his lesson. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too. When you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. The disciples had actually asked about two events, so there were two lessons to learn. The first lesson was taught using the parable of the fig tree. Most trees in Palestine are evergreen, but the fig tree loses its leaves in the fall, and when leaves begin to reappear, it's obvious that summer is near. In a similar way, when the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem, they would know her desolation was at hand. It was right at the door. And the word it 
is actually to be preferred over he. It is near, not he is near. It's translated he by those who assume this is a reference to the second coming of Christ, which it is not. What Jesus was talking about here would happen during the lifetime of his hearers, that current generation. And obviously he didn't return during that generation. But the temple was destroyed within 40 years. And yes, there will be a sign that it was about to take place. Jesus told them what it would be, and they could count on it. His word never fails. On the other hand, however, there would be no sign that would serve as an advanced warning about the end of the age of that day or hour. That was the second thing Jesus wanted to make sure they had learned. And contrary to the Jewish expectations, it would not be simultaneous with the destruction of the temple. It would take place on another date known only to the Father. And that is the way he wants it left. Date unknown. Because he wants us to always be on the alert. Take heed. Keep on the alert. For you do not know when the appointed time is. It is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, at cock crowing, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Now, Jesus actually told several parables here to emphasize the importance of staying on the alert. Mark only records the parable of a man away on a journey who would come back at any moment. Matthew includes the parable of the thief coming at night and the ten virgins who were to watch and be ready when the bridegroom appeared. The point of it all was simple. Stay on the alert because we do not know when Jesus will return and he wants us living expectantly. He wants us understanding he could come back before I finish the next word. Okay? That's the way he wants us to live. He does not want us speculating about some future date for his return. Or analyzing current events and saying, well, this must be a sign that Jesus is about to return. He doesn't want us doing that. He wants us ready now. He's waiting for nothing. 
we are to be ready now. He wants us ready now. And the only way we can be ready is to make certain that we have accepted his offer to save us and to then remain faithful until he calls us home. Whether that's an individual event or an event where the rest who are on earth are called home together. He wants us ready. This Olivet Discourse is the most valuable teaching. Not because it makes us rich. It shouldn't. It's a valuable teaching because it prepares us for today and for tomorrow. Jesus is coming soon. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we come before you with a spirit of anticipation, longing for the day when Jesus returns. He warned the believers 2,000 years ago what was about to happen in Jerusalem, and it happened. What you say will happen always happens. And you've told us that Jesus will return just as he left us in a cloud. And you've made it very clear that we don't know when that day is. He just wants us ready. He wants us anticipating. He wants us living in faith. He wants us living in confidence. Horrible things happen all the time. They always have. And you allow it to take place. Sometimes you even cause it to take place. We don't know which is which. We just know that when bad things happen, it's a reminder that things aren't right yet. Sin has infected the world and our lives. And the consequences of sin are horrible and affect the innocent as well as the guilty. That's what makes it so horrible. Horrible things happen. You allow it. It brings tears to Jesus' eyes and tears to ours, but it also ignites hope for a new day. A day when there is no more sickness, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. Keep us ready for that, Father. May we never lose hope because our hope is grounded not in what happens in our world, but what happens when Jesus steps back physically into our world and makes this place into the new heaven, the new earth, in which righteousness dwells. And we're together with all God's people and you, living as you intend. Thank you for that promise and for that hope. Indeed, Father, come. Lord Jesus is our prayer. Allow Jesus to come.
That's my prayer. In Jesus' name.